Good morning. Again, turn with me in your copy of the scripture, please, to First Thessalonians. We are going to continue on today and finish up this section of the first letter. Starting in verse 9. Paul writes a familiar theme at this point. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct Toward you believers, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you, charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. As he worked with his hands, Paul urged the Thessalonians to walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom of God. That seems to me to be the main point of the passage, that as he worked with his hands, Paul urged them that is the Thessalonians, to walk in a manner worthy of the kingdom of God. Paul is continuing his apologetic here. We're going to see more evidence of what to all appearances was some chirping up there in Thessalonica about Paul's motives for being there, particularly because of how he left. Begins with this recurring theme we've seen since the beginning of the letter. We're going to see it at least a couple times in this passage. The you remember, you know, you were witnesses We're continuing to hear Paul say this. He says, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He seems to mention this for a few reasons, actually, in the larger context of the letter. One is to vindicate the claim that he wasn't there out of ambition of greed. Remember in the last section, one of the things he said is, we were not there with a pretext for greed. That's true. Later on in the letter, he's going to say something about how the way they worked actually served as an example of how to work hard. And he particularly is aiming towards what appears to be an idle bunch of folks within the church at Thessalonica. But right here, he gives us his common practice, at least to all appearances, that he did not want to be a financial burden to them. And so he actually worked with his hands. He did receive help from Philippi while he was there. 
But recall that when he was in Philippi, he didn't uh, receive money from them either. His common practice was to where the place in which he was serving, he didn't accept their money because he did not want to create wrong appearances. After he had moved on, he would accept, if people, accept money if people wanted to partner with him in ministry. That phrase, night and day, labor and toil, uh, very common phrases in the literature of that time, just communicating that they worked hard. They worked a lot, okay? They worked a lot, and they were trying to be self-sufficient. I do want to draw your attention to something here, and that is the relationship, on the one hand, of the laboring and the proclamation of the gospel. Because what what actually appears to be the case here, in large part at least, though though not exclusively, is that Paul proclaimed the gospel while he worked. While he worked. And one way to read this is we were there preaching the gospel and we worked so that we could, you know, and then when we got off work, we preached the gospel. But 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 historical indicators and the while there indicate that may not be the case. Generally, I would not read this long of academic excerpt, excerpt excuse me, from a commentary. But this is very clear, accessible, and, and well said. I want you to listen to the insight here from a perhaps the number one Thessalonian scholar in the world. He says, It is commonly held that Paul won converts from paganism by preaching in the marketplaces and on street corners, in company with other wandering philosophers, teachers, and miracle workers who are all competing for the same audience. But while there is evidence that the apostle did evangelize at times in public settings, such evidence is remarkably rare. The book of Acts, despite its interest in portraying the public acceptance of Christianity, hardly ever records the apostle as ministering in public venues. A more likely setting for Paul's evangelistic ministry, both in Thessalonica and elsewhere, was in the semi-private setting of a workshop. The apostle thus closely links his work and his preaching in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, working night and day while we preach to you the gospel of God. And although the precise relationship between the working and the preaching is open to debate, a good case can be made that they happen contemporaneously, that is to say, at the same time. Um, In other words, Paul presented the gospel to fellow workers and customers while laboring in the workshop. This scenario is supported by some ancient sources that depict the workshop as one of the conventional settings for intellectual discourse and instruction, a century after Paul, Celsus, an enemy of Christianity, complains how in Christian families the children are not being taught at home as they should be tutored, but are going to the wool dresser's shop or to the cobbler's, which is someone who makes shoes, or to the washerwoman's shop to be instructed in the faith there. A modern analogy would be the barber shop in America in the 50s and 60s. People went to the barber shop not just to get a haircut, but also to catch up on the latest news and engage in discussion and debate with others gathered there. We can plausibly reconstruct, therefore, Paul's post-synagogue ministry. Remember, for three consecutive Lord's Days, he was in the synagogue, but after that, his post-synagogue ministry. The apostle was working in a local uh, leather workshop, making or repairing tents, as well as producing a range of leather and woven goods. During the long hours at his workbench, Working night and day, he preached the gospel of God to fellow workers, customers, and others who had heard about the Jewish leather worker who had recently arrived in town with new and provocative ideas. 
Some, of who, some, some who participated in these workshop discussions accepted Paul's words, not as the words of men, but as what it truly is, the word of God, and so turned from idols to serve a living and true God. These new believers would need further instruction about their newfound faith, and so either returned to the workshop or met Paul and his fellow missionaries elsewhere for one-on-one -on -one discipleship that we see in verse 11. We instructed each one of you. That's emphatic in the Greek. We'll get down there. This is a I know that was a long quote. I appreciate your attention there. Uh, th this is a tremendous dynamic to recognize. This is really tremendous. I think it should challenge us to rethink the intentionality with which we spend time doing ordinary things and laboring. Just ordinary things and laboring. We'll come back to that in the application. Come back to that in the application. But that's what he says. We work so that we would not be a burden to you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He says, you are witnesses. Again, so we've got you remember, now you are witnesses, essentially the same thing. And he repeats what he has already said multiple points now in the letter. You are witnesses, and God also, of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. And then he switches to, on my reckoning, uh, the third analogy in five verses, if you, if, you, if you agree with me that instead of gentle in verse 7, it's infants. And you've got infants, then you've got like a nursing mother. And he gives us his fifth analogy here. He says, for you know how like a father with his children. We've got, you remember, for you were witnesses. Now, for you know, I mean, he is clearly appealing to things that they are supposed to grasp, they are supposed to know. It's not supposed to be some kind of, of revelation for them. He's portrayed himself as a spiritual mother to the Thessalonians, and, and that motherhood of them was teased out primarily, if you recall, with the, the breastfeeding imagery, the nursing imagery uh, um, the nurturing, the gentle nurturing role, the fatherhood of them, however, is teased out a little bit differently. How is that teased out? For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you. Those three things. So this is typical of what a father would have been responsible for doing in the culture, teaching, providing instruction, giving guidance to his children. Now, trying to over-dissect the nuances of these words, some people go off the rails here uh, and, and I think miss the point. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged and charged. Uh, well, he means this very specific thing we, uh, you know, uh, by each one because the words are very similar. And if you look at different translations, the words they used to translate it, uh, sometimes seem switched around, seem different. But the point is this, he was serving this kind of fatherly role that would have been expected at the time. He, everyone who would have heard him say this would have understood what he meant by that. It was the father who was to encourage and exhort, give guidance, teach, help shape virtue, uh, at least primarily. And he says that's what he's trying to do. And at this point, he's not asserting his authority over them. Okay, he's not telling them, I'm a father, so submit. That, that's not it. He's, he's, he's using the father imagery to show how seriously he takes his role to see Christ formed in them. He's using the father imagery to show them how serious he takes his role, seriously he takes his role in seeing Christ formed in them. 
I mentioned just a second ago that each one of you is emphatic in the Greek. Uh, It strongly suggests that Paul and his companions spent personal time with folks. There wasn't just a public ministry. It wasn't just preaching. Uh, And this, of course, goes very well with the workshop discipleship model that we just heard about. That there would be times where there was someone just, just hanging out in there with the Apostle Paul. Wouldn't have that been incredible? Who would not like that theology lesson? Here's Paul, working leather, taking your questions. But that's what happened. There were people who were spending time one-on-one. So each one of you in the church wasn't that large. So over a period of time, that would have been possible. Small little groups, also large setting. It was a both and. Uh, But it also fits well with this parenting analogy that he's using. Because any parent who has tried to generically parent with like a universal parenting template who has more than one kid, like you know that that's a... That is like a mission doomed to failure, probably. Now, of course, you have overarching principles that are always the same, but like your children are different. Okay, very different. I don't need to tell any of you that. And you're like, well, you, you know, you kind of have your first child, like, all right, we got this. Like, we know what we're doing. Then your second child comes along, you're like, what happened? It's like none of our best practices are working. Like this child loves, loves to color all in the lines and like be all neat. This, this one scribbles all over the page. This one is scared of these things. This one's scared of these things. This is my daredevil. This is my bookworm. This is a say, okay. So just this, similarly, you can't have a generic pastoring plan. And Paul realizes that He's, he wants to meet individual people where they are at to speak truth into their life to say, hey, here's what it looks like to follow Christ, even if you come with this background, even if you come from this baggage, even if you came out of this particular form of idol worship, even if your living situation is like this. And so he's able to speak to people uh, particularly and specifically and not just proclaim a generic gospel. He exhorts each one of them. So he says he's like a father with his children. He, he, he paints a picture of how he has been like a father, these things, exhorting, encouraging, charging, and then he gives the purpose. He gives the purpose to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. By the way, if someone is like my English people out there, you're like, Tyler, shouldn't we walk worthily? Someone thought that, didn't they? Adverbs modify verbs, Tyler. Did you forget the English language? No, it's an ellipsis which means as part of the sentence is supposed to be understood, walk in a manner worthy, uh, because walk worthily sounds silly. That's why. Okay, so walk in, in, a, in parentheses, in a manner worthy, is the, why this series is titled that. But anyways, this is where we get that from. He's charging them to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the first part is almost identical to what he tells the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4.1, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he already gives the shape of this call back in chapter 1. Our gospel came to you not only in word. Remember back up with me to uh, chapter, excuse me, verse 5 of chapter 1. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So our gospel came to you not only in word, which is sometimes the, called the outward call, okay, um, but the, the Holy Spirit showed up. The Holy Spirit convicted. You accepted it for what it was, the actual word of God. So these people were not just called to, they were called out. 
They were called to with the gospel, but the Spirit worked, and these people came out of darkness. And that's why he can tell them to walk in a particular manner worthy of their calling. This little adverbial phrase, which it is in the Greek, worthily of God, it's one that occurs in some of the other Hellenistic religions, but it has to do with a priest or a follower who was required to do certain things that corresponded to the characters uh, or, or the demands of the God that they're serving. And so instead of giving some kind of long laundry list of things here, Paul just says, listen, consider who God is, consider his nature, and walk in a manner that's, that's worthy to be representing someone like that. Paul sets before his readers the goal of living in a way that is consistent with the nature of their God. Okay? Now you notice that word calls here is usually in the past tense. You were called. But here it's in the present tense, and it's in the present tense for good reason. Because he's trying to emphasize the ongoing and effective nature of that calling out of darkness. In other words, it's not as though you were called and then the call ended and then you moved on to something else or someone else called you, right? So, it, so to go back to the, maybe, maybe the parenting illustration, you know, you are, you know, you, you're not, you're, you're initially called maybe, you might say, to uh, be a parent in, the, in virtue of a pregnancy or in virtue of a desire to adopt or something like that. But after that happens, you don't just stop. It's like, oh, we had that call, but now we moved on to another one. It's like, no, it's a call that happens, but it continues. It continues uh, indefinitely into the present. And I have to say that I, I am so thankful for that because if God did not continue to call me, I, would I promise you I would go run after every other siren's call. I promise I promise that if God was not continually calling me and holding me fast, I would find other things to go do. Guaranteed. Because of my sinful nature. The calling was effective. It called me out of darkness and the same, the same spirit, the same God continues to call me to himself. And what's the call to exactly here? God's own kingdom and glory. We're getting called to the rule of, of God and to glory itself. Which is why, even in our sinfulness and finiteness, we love the idea of, of ruling. And we love getting dim little glimpses of glory. It could be an incredible athletic play. It could be a sizzle of a steak on a grill. We love awesomeness because it's part of what we were made for in some sense. We love awesomeness. Everyone wants to see things and experience things that are awesome and glorious and that are powerful. Rosabeth Moss Cantor, who was a professor at Harvard Business School, she may be actually, I don't know, I probably should look that up, uh, has a great quote here about the idea of power that and rule that we see here, called to the kingdom of God, that's rule and power and glory. She says, power is America's last dirty word. It's easier to talk about money and much easier to talk about sex than it is to talk about power. People who have it deny it. People who want it do not want to appear to hunger for it. And people who engage in its machinations do so secretly. Why do people love power? Because I'm saying there is a sense in which you and I were created for glory. We were created for rule. We were created for power. We were created for kingdom. We have a horrible, distorted sense of those things even because of our sinfulness but it's still there. 
So do, do we tend to abuse power? Yes, we do. Do we tend to seek glory for the wrong reasons? Yes, we do. But there's something there. It's what was lost. It's what we're being called back to. And we're not just being called to an awesome kingdom that God's going to set up over there for us. Do you get that? Because wouldn't that be awesome? What if the Christian story was salvation is an amazing kingdom over there? It's like, oh man, that still sounds good. It's like, no, t- no crying and no can't. Okay, but, but, it's, but it's over there. No, 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 that's not the story. It's you get in on God's kingdom. You get on God's kingdom. You don't get your own little holy heavenly island kingdom. You, the, the creature shares with the creator here. You're being called into his own kingdom. His own kingdom and glory. That is the end towards which Paul encourages the Thessalonians here. And then what he's going to do, he's going to shift a little bit. It, it, your, your text probably has a break here. And that's because he pivots a bit. He kind of ends that section in a sense. And he's going to talk about two things. Imitation and thankfulness. Imitation and thankfulness. I should say thankfulness and imitation because that's the order it goes. He says, we also thank God constantly for this. That when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, That is what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. They didn't accept it like other folks duped by popular philosophers, and they didn't just add it to their thought life. It wasn't just another perspective to consider. That's the idea here. It wasn't just another uh, perspective to consider, a way of accepting the Word of God that I assure you was no more popular uh, that, that, that was not more popular there than it is now in places where there's incredible pluralism. In fact, you talk people in the mission field in areas where there's a ton of different religions and ton of different gods and idols. They'll tell you people are all too. They're happy to hear about God. They're happy to hear about Jesus and then kind of add that to their repertoire. Well, I got this God and this God and this God. Oh, there's another God. Oh, great. Here, why well, add that one too? Hey, the more the merrier. The more gods in my corner, the better. He said, no, that's not the picture here. The idea is that there's God's word and then there's literally everything else. He said, when we came to you, we're we're thankful for this, that you accepted it not just as a word, but the word. You accepted it as as God's word. There is an element of exclusivity here. Again, God's word, everything else. He said, we're thankful that you did not just accept it like anything else. There are so many opportunities to do that. And one of the unique properties of God's word is that it is not merely received and stored as this piece of static information or maybe a moral framework uh, like a, a utilitarianism or abstract thoughts about the nature of the good or the platonic forms or something like that. It, it works. It's a word that works. It works in believers. It's initially received, and then it's, it's ingested, so to speak, I guess. And it's mold over. It starts to become a, a part of someone's thought patterns. And, th- and then that starts to change the way someone thinks about God and, and how they think about themselves and how they think about the world. And then, and then that starts to affect what people desire in light of those things. 
And then people go back to the Word because they desire more of that. And all of a sudden, it's the Word getting to work. It's a Word that is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword that pierces our soul. It's a Word that works. And so here's my shameless pastoral plug. There's a Word that works. Shouldn't we be about, you know, probably you know, meditating on it and reading it and trying to get as much in there as possible so it works. So it works. We have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? The answer is nowhere. So we have the words. So let's let them work by drinking them in, meditating on them. And so after, after having already told them, if you recall in chapter 1, how they became entertainers of Paul... He does so again, but in a largely expected way. And then the passage kind of takes a turn that some people reading, you're like, what just happened? Like, what just happened in this passage? How did we get from where we were to where we are? He says, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea? Judea? Why Judea? I mean, just remember our geography here. I mean... Roughly, Greece, Judea, Europe, Middle East. I mean, if you want to be real, okay. Why on earth is Paul, why not? The church is at Philippi. The church is at whatever. Where is that here? Why, Why is Paul drawing their attention to churches in Judea? It's a good question. It's a great question. But what I want to suggest here and what we're going to see is that what Paul is doing is placing the Thessalonians in a biblical theological story that runs right through Jerusalem. Right where the promised land swallows up the promised one. He is situating them in a story. He says, For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. He says, the Jews in Judea who embraced the gospel of Christ were persecuted by their own folks. By their own folks. By their own kind. Just like you all were. Remember it was the Jews who got all upset about things and ran them out. And Paul continues to drive this home in the next two verses which is sometimes called in scholarly literature Paul's, uh, Paul's polemic against the Jews in 1 Thessalonians. Okay? It's a well-known section. It's been described as some as violent, vehement, vindictive, passionate, intemperate, bitter, and harsh. Listen to what he says here. Why? Because he clearly points out a few things. That they, starting in 15, who the Jews killed both the Lord Jesus Christ and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. That's how. So in response to charges of anti-Semitism here, which cannot in any way be justified by, by Paul's words, we should notice that he isn't doing this randomly. He is situating them within a story, a biblical theological story, where they are tied to the believing Jews in Judea because they share the same foundation in Jesus Christ. And similarly, they are also opposed by Jews, just like the Jews who embrace the gospel and just like the Lord Jesus himself. He's saying, you're part of it. You are not disconnected way up here. You're part of a larger story. 
You fit. This fits. And certainly everything he says is in fact true, isn't it? I mean, just look, the, the Jews did in fact kill Jesus and the prophets. And they did in fact drive Paul and Silas out of Thessalonica. They certainly displeased God in light of those things. And because of the hardness of heart, because of their hardness of heart, and then the most emphatically and perhaps surprising, they are misanthropes. Misanthropes. I mean, someone doesn't like, they oppose men and women, mankind. You oppose all mankind. That is an incredible... Have you ever had anyone say that to you, that you oppose mankind? That's a really strong thing to say. You're not just against this or this. You're against people. You hate people. That's what you do. Talking about... by the, And how do they do that, by the way? They are against mankind in virtue of what? Because they're trying to hinder the message of the gospel going forward to the Gentiles that will save their souls. And Paul says, that's what causes you to oppose all mankind. Talk about taking a 21st century shot at, at kind of social and political slogans about if you disagree with me, this and that, you just, you're not just, we don't disagree, you reject me or you oppose me. You know what Paul says? Here, let me tell you what it means to oppose, okay? Are you, are you trying to prevent this gospel going forward? Okay, then you oppose, you, you, you oppose people, you reject mankind. That's how serious this is for him. They oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. They're presenting, they're preventing, excuse me, the message of salvation going forward. He says, yeah, you know why? Because you, you, you're opposed to all of mankind. You're a pitiful misanthrope. That's what he says. What is the result for the Jews, Paul says? So as to always fill up the measure of their Sins. So think of kind of a measuring cup here. It, you know, you measure your water or flour, whatever the case is, out in your cup. But there's a point at which the cup stops measuring. Why? Because it's filled up. And at that point, you're not doing any measuring. You're just pouring flour onto your uh, counter or something. Okay? The idea here is that there is a filling up of sin that will not be indefinite, but eventually will be met by wrath. And that is exactly what the last clause of the passage says. But wrath has come upon them at last. Now let me just say, this is by far the most difficult clause in this passage. So it's, and, and that's regrettable, and I'll tell you why. As that's not the main point of the passage, but because of the nature of it, it's going to take the most time to explain, which always feels like, ugh. Why is it difficult? First, you have to, it's not clear whether that at last is a great interpretation. You have a superscript number in your text, almost certainly, that takes you down uh, to the bottom where it provides an alternate translation. Is it at last or is it till the end? Uh, second, God's wrath is usually something that's future. What, what is this? God's wrath has come upon them at last. Like, that's how you translate it. Third, what, what are the theological implications for the Jews? All these things come to bear in this little sentence here. So let's see, let's see what we can sort a little bit of it out. It does seem that the at last interpret, uh, interprets that, that in the Greek is ace telos. You hear that telos is the end, the end of something. In light of thinking that Paul is referring exclusively, maybe uh, just primarily, to some event that has recently happened that the Thessalonians would have known about. Like an event in history 
or a combination of them that the Thessalonians might have identified. So it could have been Claudius kicking the Jews out of Rome. That's actually how Paul met Aquila and Priscilla. They got kicked out of Rome by Claudius. He expelled the Jews from Rome. It could have been the famine in 46, 47 AD that Paul was fundraising for. And in fact, there was a massacre. There are a variety of events probably that he could have pointed to to say uh, this is a historical example of the wrath of God here on the Jews. Um, I have to say that it isn't clear by the wrath on the Jews, provided that he's given examples from different times and different places, is meant to be understood as these local instances of judgment, if, if that's what that is. The them, in other words, seems to be a more general group, that is to say the Jews, who could be said to have persecuted the prophets, Jesus, kicked Paul out way up here, people divided by geography and land and time, space, all the rest. And thus the wrath coming upon them seems to extend past any particular event, whether in Rome or in Jerusalem or otherwise. Uh, the, the, the last interpretation, or tra it's a translation and interpretation, it also it doesn't seem to parallel the temporal sense of the Jews' sins. Notice that always so as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Um, it, it actually seems in the absence of other considerations, the wrath uh, is likely parallel with the sin. Both are ongoing. Both are going up to the present. Remember, they're filling it up, and the wrath seems to be parallel to that. I do think until the end is a less misleading translation. It's more faithful to the Greek. It does better a job explaining the, the, the parallelism there, and it makes better sense of wrath coming. Um, but, but the wrath of God, just to, to address this second point, is generally something that's uh, uh, addressing something in the future. It's future-oriented, okay? Uh, and we'll see that again in Thessalonians. We'll see that, uh, that, that we'll see the wrath of God is coming, especially in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, but, by, but we've already seen the word calling used uh, in the present tense, and that's something that's usually in the past tense as well. Okay? It's already been used. It seems better to understand God's wrath according to this already not yet paradigm that we see uh, in the kingdom. We see this all throughout the New Testament, that God's kingdom has in fact come truly, but it has not come completely and fully. We get a taste of this in Romans chapter 1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed. And then Paul goes on in Romans 1 to say at least three times that God, as a result, the expression of that wrath, gave them up. Gave them up. And in two cases, it is to sexual sin. In other cases, to a large vice list. God gave them up. The wrath, there's a kind of judicial wrath that is not a fatherly chastening that has broken into the present but has not yet been fully executed. And that full execution remains for the day of the Lord, which we are also going to see later in the letter. Um, what about then the theological implications for the Jews? Here, I have to say that whatever anyone concludes is going to be largely informed by their larger, larger biblical theological understanding of how they put the pieces uh, together. Um, I, I feel comfortable, given how Paul uses the language of the end, and if you can probably just look over 
in your copy of the scripture and see, you're going to see the coming of the Lord. Chapter 5 is going to be the day of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 1 is going to be the wrath of God when Jesus returns. I feel very comfortable saying that the end means uh, the return of Christ. What happens after the return of Christ, however, isn't spelled out here. So I don't feel compelled to do so. Uh, and it is the subject of much debate. And there are really, really good, God-loving, Scripture-saturated, very smart, faithful people who disagree about that. But really, the, what are the theological implications for the Jews here? But wrath has come upon them to the end. Uh, uh, really is going to be decided by someone's understanding of Romans chapter 11, or really Romans 9 through 11 more appropriately, perhaps Revelation 20 and what one believes uh, about the nature of the millennium described there, and perhaps one's understanding of the nature of uh, particular Old Testament promises made to corporate Israel. We don't have to sort that out. We don't have to sort that out because that's just not in our text today, uh, and, our, and this seems to be compatible with a, a multiple ways of sorting out that question. So to sum up then, because of the consistent opposition to God's messengers, God's son, the gospel going to the Gentiles, such Jews, which by the way, clearly is not all of them. Remember, Paul has always said he's, he's, the, God, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. But what does he do? It's his custom. He starts in the synagogues. That's where you find Jews. It's not like he didn't care about Jews. You want to see Jews saved, and in fact, the first converts there were Jews. So it's not all Jews, but the, the Jews who are in this vein will incur the judicial wrath of God that has broken into the present. And it will finally culminate on the day of the Lord. Okay, So despite Jewish and Thessalonian opposition, Paul reflects on his time, and we see him say that as he worked with his hands, he urged the Thessalonians to walk worthy of the kingdom. It's the idea. I want to give two brief points of application here. The first is making disciples in the run of life, or I have in my notes, disciple work. Uh, we mentioned Paul's model, and I read an extended quote about that. And I just wonder if it's appropriate to ask how we can reappropriate or reappropriate, excuse me, or restructure some of the normal work that we do in a way that making disciples is not just reserved for one particular or special set-aside time. Regardless of what you are called to, what might that look like? To be clear and to be fair, what you are called to is probably not at all like the barber shop. I'm not suggesting it is, but how might you take advantage of whatever it is that you're doing Wherever God has you now, however you are laboring, in the home, out of the home, whatever it is, to exhort and encourage people toward godliness, regardless of where they happen to be relative to Christ. Okay, Maybe it's just one thing. Maybe you can just think of just one concrete thing, one little thing to take away and try this week. Uh, um, and it, Maybe you just, I don't know, maybe you eat lunch in a different place, uh, have different conversations uh, meet new people. Maybe you, uh, maybe you sit at a different desk. Maybe you know, when you're uh, mind-numbingly waiting on your Zoom call to start and there's other people in there before, it's maybe your pre-call time is spent different. Maybe you're someone who's just terrified, so you put a Bible on your desk or your Bible on a table at Panera Bread or whatever it is that you go, and maybe that's a first step of just trying to do something 
I'm just asking, can you do something? Can you do anything to take a step towards just being maybe a little bit more uh, intentional here? Maybe you're a parent who, for whatever reason, uh, and there could be a variety of them, the, 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 the kind of the post-dinner family worship service is challenging. It doesn't happen a lot, and when it does, everyone dreads it happening. Fair enough. Hey, can you find r- discipleship opportunities in the run of life in a paradigm that I don't have time to spell out here in moments, milestones, creating traditions in your home, creating a climate of modeled repentance, and recontextualizing how you celebrate achievements? Can you find discipleship opportunities in the run of life in moments, milestones, creating traditions, creating a climate of modeled repentance and forgiveness, and recontextualizing how you celebrate achievements? All of these things as you labor on a regular Wednesday. All of these things can be run of life things. How can we do disciple work? How can we take Paul's model and do this? What's one tiny little piece of application you could take Perhaps try this week to be more intentional. Finally, let me just talk about this. A worthy life. (laughs) Resurrecting worthy living from the ash heap of depravity. Now, why did I say it like that? Well, it's because because of our systematic theology, the idea of a worthy life for some people is like, Tyler, you forgot Romans 3. We've all, you know. There, there is no one righteous. There's no one worthy. Andrew Peterson already told us all who's worthy. It's Jesus, not you. All right? We're, you know, you're not worthy. You can't live a worthy life. You're just a sinner. And the, well, apparently, this is a legitimate moral exhortation here. He gives it to the Ephesians. He gives it to the Colossians as well. We didn't look at that passage. And there's no anticipation of people going, oh, wait, Paul, we can't do this. Like, it's not even a thing. Like, didn't you know we're, de- you know, we're sinful? We can't, be, we can't walk in a manner worthy. That's not it. It's a moral exhortation here. And notice, it's a compelling angle. The way he gives it here is a very compelling angle. It is not the standard, and just to be clear, very good exhortation to obey, number one. And then the motivation for doing so is not to avoid fatherly discipline, nor is it for personal gain. Rather, it challenges us to focus on the dignity and the honor of the calling we have received and continue to receive. And here's what I'm going to say. People who understand the Christian calling primarily in terms of instrumental value, getting out of the line going to hell and into the line going to heaven are going to struggle with this kind of motivation. Because it would make about as much sense as saying, you know, in the shed, you're out there in your shed, you say, hey, handle that hammer worthily. It's a hammer. So what are you supposed to do? Like get a, get a velvet cloth for it or something? It's something that does a job. It's not a dignified thing. It's not a relic. It's not a gem. Okay? It gets a job done. The people who tend to see the gospel just as this instrument, as some kind of fire insurance, are going to struggle with understanding how this is very much of a motivation. And I, and I have to wonder if sometimes we lose sight of the incredible dignity and honor of being called into the very kingdom and glory of God. If sometimes we just lose sight of that. Uh, one of my favorite movies, and it will be for all time, is the movie Hook. And um, if you've seen Hook, if you haven't seen Hook, what's wrong with you? But anyways, if you've seen Hook, you know that Captain Hook has this little first mate named Smee. Smee, and uh, and in the battle scene at the end, the ship, there's this, you know, it's everything's chaotic, and uh, they're both up there, Captain Hook and Smee, standing on there. 
And he says, Smee, Smee, do something intelligent, Smee. And because uh, he's always supposed to be the brains or whatever. In this kind of comical moment, he runs into the captain quarters and he's like, what about Smee? What about Smee? What about Smee? And he's like, oh, Smee's me. He realizes that he got so jumbled up in the command and trying to listen and like understanding the battle that, that he forgot who he was. There's just so much going on. So much going on. He was trying to do so many things. And he was, ha, ha, ha. The man forgot who he was. That's what's suggested in the comical scene there. And I, just, I was thinking about it the other day, and I just wonder if that's sometimes... We have so many challenges. There are so many problems. Life is hard. Relationships are hard. Uh, 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 aging is hard. Health is hard. Mental health is hard. All of it. Do, do we, in, in, the, in the, just the foray, the... In, in, in the jumble of mess that we have to deal with on a, on a daily basis, do we lose sight of, of who we are? You know, my guess is there are times where you've been in a situation, make a choice, you're trying to make a difficult decision, and, and you know somebody, maybe they're a pastor, your dad, your mom, someone that you respect a lot, and you ask a question like this, what would this person do in this situation? You probably you probably have thought that before. Um, but But what if how... The question we ask on a daily basis is something like this. What would someone who God specifically and personally set apart to get in on his glory and inside his kingdom, how would they handle this? How would they carry themselves in this situation? Okay? And then you and then the second part is this, you're like, oh wait, that's me. That is me. I'm that person. I'm not thinking about him over here. That, that's me. I'm Smee. That's it. I am the person. I'm called to glory. It's a calling higher than kingship and royal courts and foreign dignitaries and the best humanitarian and professional callings and all those things are great. But they're not, that's not a calling to kingdom and glory, especially not the kingdom and glory of God. Someone who is called to, someone who is called to something like that... They're not afraid to claim it. They don't hope that no one asks what they do. They're not ashamed of their calling or embarrassed by it or offer some kind of apology for it. That's what a scrub does. That's not what someone who's called to glory does. They aren't apologizing for their calling. They know the dignity of the calling that they have. Glory and kingdom. And if you're in Christ... That's you. That's me. Walk fittingly, Paul says. Carry yourself appropriately, Paul says. Walk worthily. Let's pray. God, we stand in awe of a king in a kingdom, but we, we confess that the pressures of this world and the troubles of this life can sometimes cause us to forget what we are called to default to an instrumental understanding of the gospel is something that just kind of helps out. We forget the honor and the glory of our calling. We forget who we are. Lord, would you give us fresh perspective and eyes to see would you help us to make disciples where we work, live, and play to integrate these things into the run of life, to understand how we can be intentional with our time? 
do a work in us and for us. Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen.